God, we thank you uh, for who you are and for what you've done for us. And Lord, as uh, Pastor Will comes to preach today, God, that the words come from you and not from him. And Lord, if there's anybody in here, um, God, that's struggling, that, that needs prayer, that needs to be lifted up, that they reach out to somebody. And Jesus, we're thankful for what you're doing in each one of our lives. In your precious holy name, amen. Well, amen. If you've got your Bible, we're in James chapter 4. read a funny quote today I think you guys can relate to. I know I related to it. So a pastor was preaching through the very same thing that we're preaching through, and one of his congregants came up to him, and this was kind of how the conversation went. said, uh, when preaching through this, this epistle... A brother of Christ told me that he was so thankful for what James, or thankful for James, and all that it was doing in his life, in the life of our church. And then he said, what I'm most thankful for is that James only has five chapters. And I don't know if, if, if I don't know, I think we're in the same boat. Um, it's been a, a it, as he lands the plane, he's not landing it well. I feel like we're just kind of Oh, goodness. It's kind of been brutal. Last week was a tough week. I uh, can't make any promises that, ta- that today is not going to be any, any better or easier, nonetheless. But it is what's next, and that's what we're committed to do. I think we can all relate to that particular, particular phrase. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I am a planner. Any, any other planners in here? Raise your hand. I like details. One of my favorite things in the world are details. Wasn't always that way. Um, I think uh, the nature of the job, um, nonetheless, is kind of what we have to do in ministry, and especially within the student ministry world. Did that for 20 years. You're having to plan because uh, parents really like details when they send your kids off with you. And so we want to have details together. I love details. I love uh, a plan. There's a couple times in ministry, though, I wish I would have had a little bit more oversight in in a plan. When I was living in Arkansas, Bev and I were serving in Arkansas at the first church we served at right out of college, and uh, somebody had this great idea, um, one of the deacons in the church, that we should do a, a student ministry uh, ski trip to Winter Park, Colorado. Winter Park, Colorado is one of my favorite places on earth. It is beautiful. It's great skiing. Um, it's awesome. Now, we had a budget of about $6,000 uh, in my uh, youth uh, budget at that time. And so $6,000 didn't get you very far. We didn't have a church credit card back then, so it's not like I could make all these plans and put it on a church credit card. So all these plans went on my credit card, uh, just FYI. Um, that was always scary because you, we took 50 people, 50 people in a charter bus from Mena, Arkansas, in the sticks of nowhere, to Winter Park, Colorado. It was a great time, but 30 people at $350 a pop goes on your credit card. You get a little nervous. To do, those, to do a trip like that, you have to have a pretty good plan. Now, I was partnering with a buddy of mine at the, uh, uh, within the, in the same city that we were in, and he had the charter bus, and I told him he wasn't full-time. He was a part-time dude, and I was full-time, so I said, I'll plan everything else. You just take care of the transportation, and so he did. So I asked him one day what time we need to get there. And so he said, we, we, need to, we, need, we knew we had to arrive at a certain time. We we're going to drive all night long. Many of y'all have been on that trip going to D.C. I'm like, oh, right? You've been on that trip. You know how difficult it is um, driving all night in a charter bus. And so we planned to be there at 8 a.m. Uh, Central Time. And he said, well, we need to leave here at this particular time. And I said, great, let's do it. 
So we get there, we left about 8 a.m. in the morning because it was a 24-hour drive according to MapQuest. We didn't have Google. We couldn't like Google it. Like we had to print it out. You know, you're typing it up. And then you had had to print it out and then you look on there and whatever it was. And so it was uh, about a 24-hour drive. We seemed long to me, but I wasn't going to question the guy, but it seemed like a long drive. And so we get in this charter bus and we're having a great time. Like, it's great. It's swanky. It's awesome. We're moving. You know, this isn't like church vans and a thousand of them coming together, but it is a nice, um, luxurious little uh, charter bus and we're going. We make it all the way to Topeka, Kansas. And the guy goes, so what are we going to do with these extra eight hours we're going to have? And I said, excuse me? And he goes, oh, we're going to get there at, we're going to get there at midnight. What are we going to do? With, are we going to be able to get into the lodge? And I was like, nope, we're not. We're not going to get it. So we ended up getting there. We, get, we, get, we set, parked the charter bus in front of the lodge in which we were staying, and we slept in the floor and in the seats, looking at our lodge where we're going to be staying for the next three days. Looking at our lodge, we slept. I slept in the floor, you know, like this. We had people laying out everywhere. The bus drivers were laying out everywhere. We had to wait till 8 a.m. before they unlocked the doors before we get into the lodge. I like planning. I wish I could have that one back. I don't know if you're like me, but I, will, I, I literally, this is how weird I am. I literally think about that once or twice a month. Think about that moment. I'm sitting there like, oh, I wish I could take that back. There have been some other moments too in life. But as far as like what, having a plan, I love it. You guys will remember the A-Team. Remember that the, the back in the day. I'm old enough to remember the A-Team, and there's been a movie that's come out about it. Um, Colonel Hannibal Smith, for those of you who are keeping uh, track of my life, um, by the grace of God, and solely by the grace of God, uh, I was not named Hannibal Smith. It was, on the, it was on the list. There's a family name. It's also Harvey on the list. So I was going to be Hannibal Harvey Smith, which sounds like I'd probably end up in a Netflix documentary when it was all said and done. That was my dad's. However, fortunately, there was somebody, uh, my, old, my cousin was born before me, and he got, that, he got the Harvey part of it. But my mom put her foot down and said, no, this isn't going to happen. And my dad ended up naming me William. So save that. But the A-team, Colonel John Hannibal Smith. There was Templeton Face Man Peck, Howling Mad Murdoch, which was the great character, and then B.A. Baracus. Our first introduction, I guess, to Mr. T., now, the four members of this team, they were tried by court-martial for a crime they had not committed. They were convicted and sentenced to serve uh, uh, terms in military prison, but later escaped to Los Angeles and began working as soldiers of fortune while trying to clear their names and avoid capture by law enforcement and military authorities. Colonel Smith was the one who planned all of these missions. And at the end of his mission, about every single time he did it, he had one little phrase. He'd have a cigar in his hand, and he would take a puff of this cigar, and he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. I love it when a plan comes together. James here, as we move on from this particular, or move on to this particular passage of Scripture, he really encourages and challenges the church and the Christians in that church when it comes to how they make their plans. So if you have your Bible, James chapter 4, uh, verse 13 through 5, 6. If you would, stand with me as we read. So James here confronts the early church who was living independently of the Lord. They were making their plans without even considering 
the Lord. And so here he says in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Chapter 5, 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And you will eat, uh, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who, mo- who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives. And Lord, may you just slowly, as we sit under your word every single week, God, may you slowly transform us. Just baby step us, Lord, into the image of Jesus. That's what we pray. And so, God, may you use your word to transform us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things we want to really understand about this book uh, in, in James, you guys will remember back in James one twenty seven. you can hang a left in your Bible and, and get back there if you would. Just briefly, G- James tells us here that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This kind of gave us an outline. We talked about this a couple of times before. It gave us an outline of what was happening in the book of James. And so now we have come to the end of the, James, end of the book of James, and James is telling us that we're to the section last week and this week here that we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world. This is where we are within this particular passage of scripture. And so when he comes down here to this bottom part, he tells us and he reminds us here, it is telling the church here that genuine faith does not live according to worldly independence. Genuine faith does not live according to worldly independence. We can't live independently regarding our time. Look at verse 13. He says, come now. He says, listen up. Listen here. It's like a father asking his kids to come in for a conversation. You guys have those family meetings at your house where you say, hey, God, we ought to have this conversation. That's one of my favorite things to do is not really have those conversations, but I like to freak my kids out. Um, And by texting them. So last night was one of those nights. It was just like, come on in, family meeting. You know, when I, all the kids are walking in like, what has happened? you got these big eyes. I'm just like, ah, oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, just the sense of relief goes over. But, but James is saying, it's like, come listen, like a father to his children. Come listen. Come here. Come listen to me. And he says, you who say, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He says, we make these plans. You make plans as if, as if you know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you don't know what it's going to bring. And he reminds the church this. He says that you are nothing but a mist, that you are a vapor. This morning when I stepped out of my house, it was cold. And as I'm walking to, the, to my truck and I breathe, I just see my breath. It's that time of year we can see our breath, but we, our breath is, once it's out, 
it just dissipates and it vanishes. And James is saying that's, that's our life. That's what our life is. It is just a vapor, a mist. It is here one moment and then it is gone the next. Francis Chan is a, is a, um, is a, is a pastor and he's been a missionary and he's done a lot of cool things, written a lot of books and many of y'all may have read his books, but he's got this analogy, he's got this rope that just is forever long. I don't know how long this rope is, but that rope represents all of eternity and that rope is strung out and on this, on this rope, there's, 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 this, there's this red little dot in the middle of it. There's a little piece of tape that he has here. And there's a bunch of rope to his right, and there's a bunch of rope to his left. And it represents basically all of eternity. And the red little piece of tape on there represents the life that we live on this earth. And it is but a blip of a piece of tape, just a small piece of tape wrapped around it. When you look at that piece of tape in against, I guess, the rope that goes both ways, you realize your insignificance, that we are nothing. Our time here is nothing. We are but a vapor, that we are a mist. And he says, for what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, the Lord here is not talking about not planning. <laughs> it is foolish to not plan. But what was happening in the church today and what happens in the church to, or happens to the church then and what is happening to the church today is that we often live our lives as if God has nothing to do with it. We make our plans as if he has no say in what happens. We go about, we do our business. We go about, we plan our trips. And what happens is, is we're, de we're depending solely on the on our abilities and not on the Lord. He's saying like, when you play in the things that you do, your life is but a vapor. I am in control of it all. And we need to understand that God works on his timing and not on ours. It's good to plan. It's fine to plan. Plan. But plan with God at the center of our plans. Because we always, see, we always assume that we're going to have more time. He's not rebuking the church for their plans or even for the desire to make a profit in this case in, in, the, in the world of business. He is rebuking them for the worldly self-confidence that they exhibit in pursuing these goals. So he's rebuking any kind of planning for the future that stems from human arrogance in our ability to determine the course of future events. Anybody like me, you kind of, you, you overthink things and try to figure out why things are happening the way they do and how you can fix things. And, and in my arrogance, I think I can fix them. And then I realize that all of a sudden I can't fix nothing. It's a warning that we can become so consumed with the material realm, thinking about our plans, our plots, and our strategies to work and make money that we become blind to the spiritual realities the problem is, again, is not in planning, but it's, it's planning uh, in such a way that God doesn't have a place in them. That's what James is trying, to, trying to, to just challenge the church on, to convict the church on. Because our life is just but a vapor. What would you do if you only, you only knew you had today to live? And I feel like there's a Tim McGraw song coming, right? What if you knew that you only had, this was it? How would you spend it? How would you spend the day? How would you live it? Tim McGraw said he'd go skydiving, 
Rocky Mountain climbing. 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. That's what he would do. Our life's but a vapor. I mean, this past week, saw some graphic video of two planes crashing at an air show. You think those dudes woke up that morning saying, next week I'm going to be at another air show. They did. And then six people died, I believe, in that. Because our life is but a vapor. It is but a vapor. We have no guarantees about tomorrow. No guarantees about tomorrow. Genuine faith as James talks about in, the book of, in this particular book, the genuine faith function, functions in such a way as to recognize that God controls time. He controls our time. He controls the future. His plans and his purposes are what we exist for. He does not work on our timing, and he works according to his. So James tells us, that, number one, we can't live independently regarding our time. Number two, we can't hide pride in our hearts when we live independently. Verse 15, he says, instead, so talking about what, what was happening and how they were living their life, he says this, when you make your plans, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Why does it matter on how we say things? I think words matter. 100% words matter. We live in a world in which words matter. But why does it matter how we say or what we say it? When we say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. What it's doing is in our mind, and it, which ends up working out in just life and our actions, is we recognize our dependence on God, and therefore we submit to the will of God. Romans 12 tells us that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when we sit there and we make a plan and say, listen, if the Lord wills, I have a sabbatical next summer. I'm thrilled. I'm going to spend four weeks someplace, not sure where that is. Hopefully Montana with no cell service. See you when I get back. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited about it. I'm making plans for that. But if the Lord wills and that doesn't happen, so be it. We recognize when we make plans our dependence on the Lord. We plan to do things for Christmas. But however, if those don't happen, so be it. It's the Lord's will. We recognize our dependence on him. And we submit to his particular will. Verse 16, as it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. One commentator wrote, he said, people not only leave God out of the account in planning in their lives, they brag about it as well, proclaiming their effect in autonomy and independence from the Lord. How oftentimes do we plan and we go about life, just doing life, whatever it may is, as if it's, it's been done on our own ability, on our own power, that we don't need the Lord in any of that. And he says that we boast in our arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him is in sin. This is a let, him who, or let he who has ears to hear, let him hear moment that we hear often in, in the Gospels. This is a moment in which he is saying that the church should avoid arrogance. The church knows the right thing to do but fails to do it. And it continues to live in arrogance. And that is sinful action. 
We call this in, this, in, in the world of, of churchy worldness, in churchy language, we call this the sin of omission. We're very familiar with the sin of commission, the, the sins that we commit. God tells us not to do things, and we don't do them because he told us not to do them, right? No, we do them anyway, even though he told us not to do them. That's the ones that we commit. We commit those sins. The sin of omissions is the ones that we just leave out, that we omit, that we don't do. So when the Bible tells us to take care of orphans and widows, if we're not taking care of orphans and widows, that is the sin of omission. It's the things that we should have done but didn't do it. It's a sin of omission when the Lord prompts you to share the gospel with somebody and you don't do it because you're scared. That's the sin of omission. Kind of hurt me too. We, te- we tend to think of sin as only that which we have done and that, would, that we should not have done. However, we should also consider those ways in which we have failed to do what the Lord has commanded us to do. These are sins too. Just sins too. So the root of the issue is that we live under the idea that we are in control of our own life, completely independent of the Lord, not desiring his purpose. So we can't live independently regarding our time. We can't hide the pride in our heart when we live independently. The third thing here is we can't live independently with our money. This is when he begins to meddle, I think. Nobody likes to talk about money. He says in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, we need to be really clear when we talk about rich and what we're talking about when he's talking about rich people. His indictment here is not on being rich and not on being wealthy. His indictment is the attitude of our heart when it comes to our money. There's a, uh, um, I don't know, if any musical fans, anybody like watching musicals or going to musicals and things like that? I like watching musicals too. They're kind of fun. When Bev and I first started dating, she was into musicals and things, and I didn't really know what a musical was. But she asked me one day what my favorite musical was, and I think I've told this story before. My favorite musical of all time is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It is the best musical for lots of reasons, mainly because I was a candy kid and I loved candy and I thought it was just this magical place. But it's a great musical nonetheless. And so after we began dating, we get married, we start watching all these musicals, you know, from Oklahoma and, you know, what else have we seen before I can't remember? Um, Some of them. I may have slept through a few of them. Um, But one of the ones that we watched, probably should have slept through this one, um, but it's called Fiddler on the Roof. And if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, you remember there's a, in in the beginning of the movie, it's about this poor Jewish family in all reality. Um, and uh, there is, uh, the main character is, is, is a father. Um, and his name, I'm going to, I think is, if I remember right, I'm, my, my Hebrew is a little bit rusty. But uh, his name is uh, Tevye. Tevye is his name. And Tevye and this other character named Perchik, uh, Perchik is, is a young boy who wants to marry uh, Tevye's daughter, Hodel. And they're having this conversation, and they're both poor. And, you know, Tevye wants his daughter to go to a rich man or wealthier man so she can have a better life than what basically he's provided for her. And uh, so there's this conversation about money, and Perchik says this. He says, money is the world's curse. And Tevye, in response, he said, may the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. 
And I just thought that was a great line because I think we've all been there. You know, many of us who grew up in the 90s were familiar with the notorious B.I.G. who said, mo money, mo problems, right? And we would like to figure out what, the, what he means by that. I think if we have that money, we have this idea, of, I'll take a few problems as long as I have this money. Why do we use it that we want the money? It's because money, money in the world in which we live in makes us feel secure. They're secure in this, this idea of being financially stable. But again, it's not about being rich. It's about our attitude of our heart with the money in which we have. Now, you all know, and I'm pretty sure you know, we're, we're, we're smart people in this room, that America is a really, really wealthy country. And regardless of how much money you make annually, I guarantee you that you are incredibly wealthy compared to a good majority of the world in which we live in. Because did you know that one point, or basically, I wouldn't say this, basically a billion people, roughly right around a billion people live on $2 or less a day. $2 or less a day. Quick math. Make sure I get this right before I say it. $730 a year. I don't know about you. That's like one trip to the grocery store almost for a family my size. It's expensive. And, we, and that's, that's on a year, $730 a year that people spend. That's all they have. They live on that, less than $2 a day. Some of you have been to those places. I've been to those places to the slums in Kenya, to poverty-stricken areas of China, to poor areas of the Dominican Republic. Like, we've been to these places that people only make $2 a day or live on less than $2 a day. Back to Fiddler on the Roof. Tevier has this song that he sings. Just shortly after this, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, but this is, what, this is what he says in the song. If I were a rich man, if I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. I'd build a big, tall house with rooms by the dozen, right in the middle of town. A fine tin roof with real wooden floor, floors below. There would be a long staircase just going up. There would be a long staircase just going down. And one even longer coming down. The one more, uh, the one more leading nowhere just for show. I'd fill my yards with chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear. Squawking just as noisily as they can. Gi, go, ge, go. Would land like trumpet on the ear, as if to say, here lives a wealthy man. The indictment here is not on being rich or being wealthy. The indictment is on the state of our heart when it comes to our wealth and our treasure. What does James say in verse 2? He says, your riches have rotted your garments, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, in verse 3, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
you have laid up treasure in the last day. What he is what he is telling is that he's telling these rich church members who find security in their money and not the Lord. He's telling them that your riches and that your fine clothes and that your gold, they will consume you. They will consume us. We have that they, this church has used their wealth for their own selfish purposes. And for that, their wealth will consume them. He says it will eat your flesh like fire. I like nice things. I have nice things. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. But if those nice things, if you're so consumed with keeping them nice, what is the status of our heart? I've spent a lot of money in my life on guitars. I really like guitars. It's one of my favorite things. Like tangible things that I can play. And I'm really careful about what I do with them and how I, who I let play them and the like. Like not just anybody's going to come in and play because there's, there's value in there that, that I can't honestly replace. If they were to burn up, I can't get, I can't get them back. You know? But if I go so far as to basically worship these guitars, make sure that nothing happens to them and, and whatever, like that, that desire to keep them nice and to keep them perfect and not to be a blessing and to share with other people consumes me. And when something does happen to them, I get angry and I get mad because I begin to worship a thing And James here says it will eat your flesh like fire. It's going to consume us. He says, the end of verse 2, he says that they are rotted, they are moth-eaten, they're corroded. These are in a perfect tense in, in, in the Greek, which basically means that, yes, they sound like they're in past tense, but it is coming. Like it's already done. It's already taken care of. All these things are going to waste away. They're going to pass away. They're going to do you nothing. You can't take them with you when you go. And he says at the end of verse 3, he says, you have laid up treasure in the last day. That shouldn't ring a bell for us. What does Jesus say about laying up our treasure? In, verse, in Matthew 6, 19, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... Help me out on the last part. There your heart will be also. It's not about the treasure. It's about your attitude toward that treasure. So having wealth is not the issue, but our wealth having us is the issue. It's who owns you. Are we owned by the Lord or are we owned by our tre treasures? Because our material wealth poses a threat to spiritual health. Because it gives us a false sense of security. In our culture, where gaining material wealth um, is greatly admired and encouraged, we have to ask ourselves, as believers, are we depending in any way on our riches? Because if we are, they will fade and they will fall 
and they will fail. We walk around with our guitars, or whether it's a truck, or whether it's a boat, or whether it's jewelry, whatever it is, almost like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. We just hold that as if it's my precious, right? That's what we do. That's the way that we treat it. We'll run through the end fairly quickly here. How we view our money, how, how it is that we, um, we view wealth also affects how we view people and how we treat people. In verse 4, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Why are they crying out? Because you value money more than people. And the cries of the harvesters that have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered a righteous person. And he does not resist you. When we begin to be owned and ruled and controlled by our things and our wealth, we begin to treat people differently. We treat them as if they aren't created in the image of God. One of the common themes throughout James, and we've seen it a couple, a, different, a couple of different times, is he keeps referencing the royal law. And we talked about the royal law. What is the royal law? It's to love our neighbor as ourself. When we begin to put our things, things that we value, things that are wealth to us before other people, we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. See, our arrogance has decided who is valuable and who is not. We've put the world's comforts and the desires of this world above our neighbor. In our arrogance and pride, we've decided that there are those who are valuable and those who really do not matter as much. The height of wickedness is presuming and pursuing wealth at the expense of others, which is rooted in our arrogant, prideful, self-indulgent, and self-centered pursuits. So how is it that we respond today? Well, for the, if you're a believer in here, if you're a Christian in here, we must live our lives remembering that God's plans and God's will are what is paramount in our life. When we seek to live our lives without seeking God's will, without seeking his purpose, we are walking in arrogance and pride, pursuing progression and success and riches as a means to an end. We must work in such a way that we live for God, serve him, not ourselves, and love others. And expending ourselves for our neighbor and not ourselves. So church, again, it's a call for us to repent, to, to turn away from the way in which we were going and the way we are heading in. And seeing how that we can use what God has gifted us financially to, to love people and to honor him. How is it that we go from where we're going, where we're heading now, to where he desires us to go? It's a call to repentance. And God, may you help us 
Lord, give us opportunities to love people and to use what you have gifted us. God, may you do that for us. Maybe you're here today, you don't have, you're not, a, you're not a believer. What does this mean for you? Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're depending on something of this world to sustain you, to get you through. Thinking that if you were rich, I wouldn't have the problems that I have in life. Well, this morning you need to know that there is, there is nothing in this world, riches or success, that will last and get you through. Nothing in this world will fully, satis- will fully satisfy. Jesus, in talking with the woman in the well at John chapter 4, he says to her, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. She's come to gather water because she's thirsty. And he has this conversation with her, and he says, anyone who dr- everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become Uh, In him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus this morning is offering a gift that will fully satisfy. It satisfies more than any money, any lottery, Powerball lottery you can get, any great job you can get, any great truck, a room full of guitars. He is given a gift that will fully, fully satisfy. And that gift is him. He is what our soul longs for. Our soul longs to be satisfied. And he, Jesus himself, says, I am what will satisfy you. If you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. We want to give you that opportunity every single week to leave this place knowing that you have a relationship with him, knowing that he is the one in which your soul longs for. Why are you never satisfied in life? It's because you don't have a relationship with Jesus because he's the only thing that can fully and faithfully satisfy. If you're here today, you don't have a relationship with him. We want to give you that opportunity to. As the praise team comes, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together. And God, I just thank you for just the, uh, uh, just the opportunity we have to send under your word. Uh, some days it's fun, some days it's not fun. But nonetheless, it's all challenging, and it all changes us. And Lord, I pray that as we come apart, uh, as, we, as we walk out these walls or these doors here shortly, God, that as we've, we've come together and, and we've said under your word that we'd be transformed, that we would go out differently, that we would be able to think differently on how it is that we can, we can use what you've gifted us Lord, we could use those gifts to be able to love people and to honor you. Lord, that when we go about our life, we go about it in such a way that we understand that you are in complete control. Lord, that when we plan, we know that ultimately you are in control of our plans. Lord, that you are God over our money. That we would not live according to this world, that we would live according to your word and your life. And I pray for that person in here, God, who, who does not have a relationship with you. I pray that they would, they would come this morning, that they would talk to Pastor Jeremy or, or Pastor Dave here shortly. Lord, that they would come or talk to myself out in the lobby here in a second, that they would come and say, I don't know who this Jesus is. I, I, don't, I don't understand it, but I know something's happening within my heart. I pray, God, that they would come and that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, the only 
one who can fully satisfy the desires of our heart. For us believers in here, for us Christians in here, God, I pray that this would be a time of repentance, whether that's down here at the front, maybe at the steps, just spending some time with the Lord, repenting. Maybe that's at our seat. God, may your Holy Spirit be at work and change us. That's what we pray, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for this time, and may you move as we, we worship. May you continue to do a good work in our hearts, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.